Can André-Louis be reconciled with his godfather when his godfather blames him for the insurrection in France? Raphael Sabatini, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you. With us giving away so much free material during this time of the pandemic, we need your help more than ever. Thank you so much for stepping up and helping to keep us going strong. It's helped a lot of people make it through this pandemic. In case you haven't already, feel free to take advantage of our free titles we have available. We have a few short stories and a few full-length novels available free for your enjoyment. I hope you like our new website at classictalesaudiobooks.com. It's easier than ever to get where you need to go. Thank you to Annie from the Join Us in France podcast, who helped with the pronunciations of the French names and phrases for this week's episode. If you're interested in France at all, you should check out her show. It's fantastic. App users can hear For Celia by Ben Johnson in the special features area of their app. Now for our personal moment. I mentioned it a while ago that we had dirt in our water line after an earthquake. I think it was back in March when the lockdown started. Well, it looks like it damaged our water main into our house because we went out one day and our porch was leaking. We're having it fixed today. They're running an entirely new water main from the street, so I'm not able to work at all. And our swamp cooler runs by water, so the Harrisons are going to be scrambling today. But that's okay, we can handle it. Sorry the personal moments can't be good all the time, but uh, hopefully things will turn up soon. So here's the story so far. After many adventures where he has consistently been wronged by the Marquis de la Tour d'Azir, André-Louis has become a master swordsman and is the fencing master for the most popular fencing school in Paris. His godfather, Monsieur de Kierkedou, and Aline have recently relocated just outside of Paris. And now, Scaramouche, Part 9 of 12 by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter 4 At Meudon Later in the week, he received a visit from Le Chapelier just before noon. I have news for you, André. Your godfather is at Moudon. He arrived there two days ago. Had you heard? But no. How should I hear? Why is he at Moudon? He was conscious of a faint excitement, which he could hardly have explained. I don't know. There have been fresh disturbances in Brittany. It may be due to that. And so he has come for shelter to his brother? asked André-Louis. To his brother's house, yes, but not to his brother. Where do you live at all, André? Do you never hear any of the news? Etienne de Gavriac emigrated years ago. He was of the household of Monsieur d'Artois, and he crossed the frontier with him. By now, no doubt, he is in Germany with him, 
conspiring against France, for that is what the emigres are doing. That Austrian woman at the Tuileries will end by destroying the monarchy. Yes, yes, said André Louis impatiently. Politics interested him not at all this morning. But about Gavriac. Why haven't I told you that Gavriac is at Moudon, installed in the house his brother has left? Dear, 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 don't I speak French, or don't you understand the language? I believe that Rabouillet, his intendant, is in charge of Gavriac. I have brought you the news the moment I received it. I thought you would probably wish to go out to Moudon. Of course, I will go at once. That is, as soon as I can. I can't today, nor yet tomorrow. I am too busy here. He waved a hand towards the inner room, whence proceeded the click-click of blades, the quick moving of feet, and the voice of the instructor, Le Duc. Well, well, that is your own affair. You are busy. I leave you now. Let us dine this evening at the Café du Foy. Cassin will be of the party. A moment. André-Louis' voice arrested him on the threshold. Is Mademoiselle de Quirquedieu with her uncle? How the devil should I know? Go and find out. He was gone, and André-Louis stood there a moment, deep in thought. Then he turned, and went back to resume with his pupil, the Vicomte de Vignore, the interrupted exposition of the demi-contre of Danay, illustrating with a small sword the advantages to be derived from its adoption. Thereafter he fenced with the Vicomte, who was perhaps the ablest of his pupils at the time, and all the while his thoughts were of the heights of Moudon, his mind casting up the lessons he had to give that afternoon and on the morrow, and wondering which of these he might postpone without deranging the academy. When having touched the Vicomte three times in succession, he paused and wrenched himself back to the present. It was to marvel at the precision to be gained by purely mechanical action. Without bestowing a thought upon what he was doing, his wrist and arm and knees had automatically performed their work, like the accurate fighting engine into which constant practice for a year and more had combined them. Not until Sunday was André-Louis able to satisfy a wish which the impatience of the intervening days had converted into a yearning. Dressed with more than ordinary care, his head elegantly quaffed, by one of those hairdressers to the nobility, of whom so many were being thrown out of employment by the stream of emigration which was now flowing freely, André-Louis mounted his hired carriage and drove out to Moudon. The house of the younger Kierkadu no more resembled that of the head of the family than did his person. A man of the court, where his brother was essentially a man of the soil, an officer of the household of Monsieur le Comte d'Artois, he had built for himself and his family an imposing villa on the heights of Moudon in a miniature park, conveniently situated for him midway between Versailles and Paris, and easily accessible from either. Monsieur d'Artois, the royal tennis player, had been amongst the very first to emigrate. Together with the Condes, the Contis, the Polignacs, and others of the Queen's intimate council, old Marshal de Broglie and the Prince de Lambesque, who realized that their very names had become odious to the people, he had quitted France immediately after the fall of the Bastille. He had gone to play tennis beyond the frontier, and there consummate the work of ruining the French monarchy upon which he and those others had been engaged in France. With him 
amongst several members of his household, went Etienne de Kierkedou, and with Etienne de Kierkedou went his family, a wife and four children. Thus it was that the Seigneur de Gavriac, glad to escape from a province so peculiarly disturbed as that of Brittany, where the nobles had shown themselves the most intransigent of all France, had come to occupy, in his brother's absence, the courtier's handsome villa at Moudon. That he was quite happy there is not to be supposed. A man of his almost Spartan habits, accustomed to plain fare and self-help, was a little uneasy in this sybaritic abode, with its soft carpets, profusion of gilding, and a battalion of sleek, silent-footed servants. For Kierkegaard the Younger had left his entire household behind. Time, which at Gavriac he had kept so fully employed in agrarian concerns, here hung heavily upon his hands. In self-defence he slept a great deal, and but for Aline, who made no attempt to conceal her delight at this proximity to Paris and the heart of things, it is possible that he would have beat a retreat almost at once from surroundings that sorted so ill with his habits. Later on, perhaps, he would accustom himself and grow resigned to this luxurious inactivity. In the meantime, the novelty of it fretted him, and it was into the presence of a peevish and rather somnolent Monsieur de Kierkegaard that André-Louis was ushered in the early hours of the afternoon of that Sunday in June. He was unannounced, as had ever been the custom at Gavriac, this because Benoit, Monsieur de Kierkegaard's old seneschal, had accompanied his seigneur upon this soft adventure, and was installed, to the ceaseless and but half-concealed hilarity of the impertinent Valtai that Monsieur Etienne had left, as his maître d'hôtel here at Moudon. Benoit had welcomed Monsieur André with incoherencies of delight. Almost had he gambled about him like some faithful dog, whilst conducting him to the salon in the presence of the Lord of Gavriac, who would, in the words of Benoit, be ravished to see Monsieur André again. "'Monseigneur! Monseigneur!' he cried, in a quavering voice, entering a pace or two in advance of the visitor. "'It is Monsieur André! Monsieur André, your godson, who comes to kiss your hand! He is here! So fine that you would hardly know him! Here he is, Monseigneur! Is he not beautiful?' And the old servant rubbed his hands in conviction of the delight that he believed he was conveying to his master. André-Louis crossed the threshold of that great room, soft-carpeted to the foot, dazzling to the eye. It was immensely lofty, and its festooned ceiling was carried on fluted pillars with gilded capitals. The door by which he entered, and the windows that opened upon the garden, were of an enormous height, almost, indeed, the full height of the room itself. It was a room overwhelmingly gilded, with an abundance of ormolu and crustaceans on the furniture, in which it nowise differed from what was customary in the dwellings of people of birth and wealth. Never indeed was there a time in which so much gold was employed decoratively as in this age when coined gold was almost unprocurable, and paper money had been put into circulation to supply the lack. It was a saying of André-Louis that if these people could only have been induced to put the paper on their walls and the gold into their pockets, 
the finances of the kingdom might soon have been in better case. The seigneur, furbished and beruffled to harmonize with his surroundings, had risen, startled by this exuberant invasion on the part of Benoit, who had been almost as forlorn as himself since their coming to Moudon. "'What is it, hey?' His pale, short-sighted eyes peered at the visitor. "'André,' said he, between surprise and sternness, and the colour deepened in his great pink face. Benoit, with his back to his master, deliberately winked and grinned at André-Louis to encourage him not to be put off by any apparent hostility on the part of his godfather. That done, the intelligent old fellow discreetly effaced himself. "'What do you want here?' growled Monsieur de Kierkedou. "'No more than to kiss your hand, as Benoit has told you, Monsieur my godfather.' said André-Louis submissively, bowing his sleek black head. "'You have contrived without kissing it for two years. Do not, monsieur, reproach me with my misfortune.' The little man stood very stiffly erect, his disproportionately large head thrown back, his pale prominent eyes very stern. "'Did you think to make your outrageous offence any better "'by vanishing in that heartless manner, "'by leaving us without knowledge of whether you were alive or dead?' "'At first it was dangerous, dangerous to my life, "'to disclose my whereabouts. "'Then for a time I was in need, almost destitute, "'and my pride forbade me. "'After what I had done, and the view you must take of it, to appeal to you for help. Later, destitute, the seigneur interrupted. For a moment his lip trembled. Then he steadied himself, and the frown deepened as he surveyed this very changed and elegant godson of his, noted the quiet richness of his apparel, the paste buckles and red heels to his shoes, the sword hilted in mother-of-pearl and silver, and the carefully dressed hair that he had always seen hanging in wisps about his face. "'At least you do not look destitute now,' he sneered. "'I am not. I have prospered since. In that, monsieur, I differ from the ordinary prodigal, who returns only when he needs assistance. I return solely because I love you, monsieur, to tell you so. I have come at the very first moment after hearing of your presence here.' He advanced. "'Monsieur my godfather,' he said, and held out his hand. But Monsieur de Kierkedieu remained unbending, wrapped in his cold dignity and resentment. "'Whatever tribulations you may have suffered, or consider that you may have suffered, they are far less than your disgraceful conduct deserved, and I observe that they have nothing abated your impudence.' You think that you have but to come here and say, Monsieur my godfather, and everything is to be forgiven and forgotten, that is your error. You have committed too great a wrong. You have offended against everything by which I hold, and against myself personally, by your betrayal of my trust in you. You are one of those unspeakable scoundrels who are responsible for this revolution. Alas, monsieur, I see that you share the common delusion. These unspeakable scoundrels but demanded a constitution, 
as was promised them from the throne. They were not to know that the promise was insincere, or that its fulfillment would be balked by the privileged orders. The men who have precipitated this revolution, monsieur, are the nobles and the prelates. You dare! And at such a time as this, stand there and tell me such abominable lies! You dare to say that the nobles have made the revolution when scores of them, following the example of Monsieur le Duc de Guyon, have flung their privileges, even their title deeds, into the lap of the people? Or perhaps you deny it? Oh, no. Having wantonly set fire to their house, they now try to put it out by throwing water on it, and where they fail they put the entire blame on the flames. I see that you have come here to talk politics. Far from it. I have come, if possible, to explain myself. To understand is always to forgive. That is a great saying of Montaigne's. If I could make you understand, you can't. You'll never make me understand how you came to render yourself so odiously notorious in Brittany. Ah, not odiously, monsieur. Certainly odiously, among those that matter. It is said even that you were omnis omnibus, though that I cannot, will not, believe. Yet it is true. Monsieur de Kierkegaard choked. And you confess it? You dare to confess it? What a man dares to do, he should dare to confess, unless he is a coward. Oh, and to be sure you were very brave, running away each time after you had done the mischief, turning comedian to hide yourself, doing more mischief as a comedian, provoking a riot in Nantes, and then running away again, to become God knows what, something dishonest by the affluent look of you, my God, man! I tell you that in these past two years I have hoped that you were dead, and you profoundly disappoint me that you are not. He beat his hands together and raised his shrill voice to call, Benoit! He strode away toward the fireplace, scarlet in the face, shaking with the passion into which he had worked himself. Dead I might have forgiven you, as one who had paid for his evil and his folly. Living, I never can forgive you. You have gone too far. God alone knows where it will end. Benoit, the door. Monsieur André-Louis Moreau, to the door! The tone argued an irrevocable determination. Pale and self-contained, but with a queer pain at his heart, André-Louis heard that dismissal, saw Benoit's white, scared face, and shaking hands, half-raised as if he were about to expostulate with his master. And then another voice, a crisp, boyish voice, cut in. Uncle! it cried, a world of indignation and surprise in its pitch. And then, André! And this time a note almost of gladness, certainly of welcome, was blended with a surprise that still remained. Both turned, half the room between them at the moment, and beheld Aline, in one of the long open windows, arrested there in the act of entering from the garden. Aline, in a milkmaid bonnet of the latest mode, though without any of the tricolour embellishments that were so commonly to be seen upon them. The thin lips of André's long mouth twisted into a queer smile. 
into his mind had flashed the memory of their last parting. He saw himself again, standing, burning with indignation, upon the pavement of Nantes, looking after her carriage as it receded down the Avenue de Gigant. She was coming towards him now with outstretched hands, a heightened colour in her cheeks, a smile of welcome on her lips. He bowed low and kissed her hand in silence. Then with a glance and a gesture she dismissed Benoit, and in her imperious fashion constituted herself André's advocate against that harsh dismissal which she had overheard. Uncle, she said, leaving André and crossing to Monsieur de Kierkegaard, you make me ashamed of you to allow a feeling of peevishness to overwhelm all your affection for André. I have no affection for him. I had once. He chose to extinguish it. He can go to the devil, and please observe that I don't permit you to interfere. But if he confesses that he has done wrong, he confesses nothing of the kind. He comes here to argue with me about these infernal rights of man. He proclaims himself unrepentant. He announces himself with pride to have been, as all Brittany says, the scoundrel who hid himself under the sobriquet of Omnes Omnibus. Is that to be condoned? She turned to look at André across the wide space that now separated them. But is this really so? Don't you repent, André, now that you see all the harm that has come? It was a clear invitation to him a pleading to him to say that he repented, to make his peace with his godfather. For a moment it almost moved him. Then, considering the subterfuge unworthy, he answered truthfully, though the pain he was suffering rang in his voice. To confess repentance, he said slowly, would be to confess to a monstrous crime. Don't you see that? Oh, monsieur, have patience with me. Let me explain myself a little. You say that I am in part responsible for something of all this that has happened. My exhortations of the people at Rennes, and twice afterwards at Nantes, are said to have had their share in what followed there. It may be so. It would be beyond my power positively to deny it. Revolution followed, and bloodshed. More may yet come. To repent implies a recognition that I have done wrong. How shall I say that I have done wrong, and thus take a share of the responsibility for all that blood upon my soul? I will be quite frank with you and show you how far indeed I am from repentance. What I did, I actually did against all my convictions at the time. Because there was no justice in France to move against the murderer of Philippe de Villemorin, I moved in the only way that I imagined could make the evil done recoil upon the hand that did it, and those other hands that had the power but not the spirit to punish. Since then I have come to see that I was wrong, and that Philippe de Villemorin and those who thought with him were in the right. You must realize, monsieur, that it is with sincerest thankfulness that I find I have done nothing calling for repentance, that on the contrary, when France is given the inestimable boon of a constitution, as will shortly happen, I may take pride 
in having played my part in bringing about the conditions that have made this possible. There was a pause. Monsieur de Kierkegaard's face turned from pink to purple. You have quite finished, he said harshly. If you have understood me, monsieur. Oh, I have understood you, and I beg that you will go. André-Louis shrugged his shoulders and hung his head. He had come there so joyously, in such yearning, merely to receive a final dismissal. He looked at Aline. Her face was pale and troubled, but her wit failed to show her how she could come to his assistance. His excessive honesty had burnt all his boats. Very well, monsieur. Yet this I would ask you to remember after I am gone. I have not come to you as one seeking assistance, as one driven to you by need. I am no returning prodigal, as I have said. I am one who, needing nothing, asking nothing, master of his own destinies, has come to you driven by affection only, urged by the love and gratitude he bears you, and will continue to bear you. Ah, yes, cried Aline, turning now to her uncle. Here at least was an argument in André's favour, thought she. That is true. Surely that... Inarticulately he hissed her into silence, exasperated. Hereafter, perhaps, that will help you think of me more kindly, monsieur. I see no occasion, sir, to think of you at all. Again, I beg that you will go. André-Louis looked at Aline an instant, as if still hesitating. She answered him by a glance at her furious uncle, a faint shrug, and a lift of the eyebrows, dejection the while in her countenance. It was as if she said, You see his mood. There is nothing to be done. He bowed with that singular grace the fencing room had given him, and went out by the door. Oh! It is cruel, cried Aline in a stifled voice, her hands clenched, and she sprang to the window. Aline! Her uncle's voice arrested her. Where are you going? But we do not know where he is to be found. Who wants to find the scoundrel? We may never see him again. That is most fervently to be desired. Aline said, Ugh! and went out by the window. He called after her, imperiously commanding her return, but Aline dutiful child, closed her ears, lest she must disobey him, and sped light-footed across the lawn to the avenue there to intercept the departing André-Louis. As he came forth wrapped in gloom, she stepped from the bordering trees into his path. Aline, he cried, joyously almost. I did not want you to go like this. I couldn't let you, she explained herself. I know him better than you do and I know that his great soft heart will presently melt. He will be filled with regret. He will want to send for you, and he will not know where to send. You think that? Oh, I know it. You arrive in a bad moment. He is peevish and cross-grained, poor man, since he came here. These soft surroundings are also strange to him. He wearies himself away from his beloved Gavriac, his hunting and tillage, and the truth is that in his mind 
he very largely blames you for what has happened, for the necessity, or at least the wisdom of this change. Brittany, you must know, was becoming too unsafe. The Chateau of La Tour d'Azir, amongst others, was burnt to the ground some months ago. At any moment, given a fresh excitement, it may be the turn of Gavriac, and for this and his present discomfort he blames you and your friends. But he will come round presently. He will be sorry that he sent you away like this, for I know that he loves you, André, in spite of all. I shall reason with him when the time comes, and then we shall want to know where to find you. At number 13, Rue du Hasard. The number is unlucky, and the name of the street appropriate. Therefore both are easy to remember. She nodded. I will walk with you to the gates. And side by side now, they proceeded at a leisurely pace down the long avenue in the June sunshine, dappled by the shadows of the bordering trees. You are looking well, André. And do you know that you have changed a deal? I am glad that you have prospered. And then, abruptly changing the subject before he had time to answer her, she came to the matter uppermost in her mind. I have so wanted to see you in all these months, André. You were the only one who could help me, the only one who could tell me the truth, and I was angry with you for never having written to say where you were to be found. Of course you encouraged me to do so when last we met in Nantes. What? Still resentful? I am never resentful. You should know that. He expressed one of his vanities. He loved to think himself a stoic. But I still bear the scar of a wound that would be the better for the balm of your retraction. Why then I retract, André, and now tell me. Yes, a self-seeking retraction, said he. You give me something that you may obtain something. He laughed quite pleasantly. Well, well, command me. Tell me, André. She paused, as if in some difficulty, and then went on, her eyes upon the ground. Tell me the truth of that event at the Feydou. The request fetched a frown to his brow. He suspected at once the thought that prompted it. Quite simply and briefly, he gave her his version of the affair. She listened very attentively. When he had done, she sighed. Her face was very thoughtful. That is much what I was told, she said. But it was added that Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir had gone to the theatre expressly for the purpose of breaking finally with Labinet. Do you know if that was so? I don't, nor of any reason why it should be so. Labinet provided him the sort of amusement that he and his kind are forever craving. Oh, there was a reason, she interrupted him. I was the reason. I spoke to Madame de Sautron. I told her that I would not continue to receive one who came to me contaminated in that fashion. She spoke of it with obvious difficulty, her colour rising as he watched her half-averted face. Had you listened to me, he was beginning, when again she interrupted him. Monsieur de Sautron conveyed my decision to him, and afterwards represented him to me as a man in despair, repentant, ready to give proofs, any proofs, of his sincerity and devotion to me. 
he told me that Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir had sworn to him that he would cut short that affair, that he would see Labinet no more. And then on the very next day I heard of his having all but lost his life in that riot at the Théâtre. He had gone straight from that interview with Monsieur de Sautron, straight from those protestations of future wisdom to La Binet. I was indignant. I pronounced myself finally. I stated definitely that I would not in any circumstances receive Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir again. And then they pressed this explanation upon me. For a long time I would not believe it. So that you believe it now? said André quickly. Why? I have not said that I believe it now, but... but... neither can I disbelieve. Since we came to Moudon, Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir has been here, and himself, he has sworn to me that it was so. Oh, if Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir has sworn! André Louis was laughing on a bitter note of sarcasm. Have you ever known him lie? She cut in sharply. That checked him. Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir is, after all, a man of honour, and men of honour never deal in falsehood. Have you ever known him do so, that you should sneer as you have done? No, he confessed. Common justice demanded that he should admit that virtue at least in his enemy. I have not known him lie, it is true. His kind is too arrogant, too self-confident to have recourse to untruth. But I have known him do things as vile. Nothing is as vile, she interrupted, speaking from the code by which she had been reared. It is for liars only, who are first cousin to thieves, that there is no hope. It is in falsehood only that there is real loss of honour. You are defending that satyr, I think, he said frostily. I desire to be just. Justice may seem to you a different matter, when at last you shall have resolved yourself to become Marquise de la Tour d'Azir. He spoke bitterly. I don't think that I shall ever take that resolve. But you are still not sure, in spite of everything. Can one ever be sure of anything in this world? Yes, one can be sure of being foolish. Either she did not hear or did not heed him. You do not, of your own knowledge, know that it was not, as Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir asserts, that he went to the Feydou that night. I don't, he admitted. It is, of course, possible. But does it matter? It might matter. Tell me, what became of Labinet, after all? I don't know. You don't know? She turned to consider him. And you can say it with that indifference? I thought, I thought you loved her, André. So did I, for a little while. I was mistaken. It required a Latour d'Azir to disclose the truth to me. They have their uses, these gentlemen. They help stupid fellows like myself to perceive important truths. I was fortunate that revelation in my case preceded marriage. I can now look back upon the episode with equanimity and thankfulness for my near escape from the consequences of what was no more than an aberration of the senses. It is a thing commonly confused with love. The experience, as you see, was very instructive. She looked at him in frank surprise. Do you know, André, 
I sometimes think that you have no heart. Presumably because I sometimes betray intelligence. And what of yourself, Aline? What of your own attitude from the outset, where Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir is concerned? Does that show heart? If I were to tell you what it really shows, we should end by quarrelling again, and God knows I can't afford to quarrel with you now. I... I shall take another way. What do you mean? Why, nothing at the moment, for you are not in any danger of marrying that animal. And if I were? Ah, in that case affection for you would discover to me some means of preventing it. Unless... He paused. Unless... She demanded, challengingly, drawn to the full of her short height, her eyes imperious. Unless you could also tell me that you loved him, said he simply, whereat she was as suddenly and most oddly softened. And then he added, shaking his head, But that, of course, is impossible. Why? she asked him, quite gently now. Because you are what you are, Aline. Utterly good and pure and adorable. Angels do not mate with devils. His wife you may become, but never his mate, Aline. Never. They had reached the wrought-iron gates at the end of the avenue. Through these they beheld the waiting yellow chaise, which had brought André-Louis. From near at hand came the creak of other wheels, the beat of other hooves, and now another vehicle came in sight, and drew to a standstill beside the yellow chaise, a handsome equipage, with polished mahogany panels, on which the gold and azure of armorial bearings flashed brilliantly in the sunlight. A footman swung to earth to throw wide the gates, but in that moment the lady who occupied the carriage, perceiving Aline, waved to her and issued a command. Chapter 5. Madame de Plougastel The postillion drew rein, and the footman opened the door, letting down the steps and proffering his arm to his mistress to assist her to alight, since that was the wish she had expressed. Then he opened one wing of the iron gates and held it for her. She was a woman of something more than forty, who once must have been very lovely, was very lovely still with the refining quality that age brings to some women. Her dress and carriage alike advertised great rank. I take my leave here, since you have a visitor, said André Louis. But it is an old acquaintance of your own, André. You remember Madame la Comtesse de Plougastel? He looked at the approaching lady, whom Aline was now hastening forward to meet, and because she was named to him, he recognized her. He must, he thought, had he but looked, have recognized her without prompting anywhere at any time, and this, although it was some sixteen years since last he had seen her. The sight of her now brought it all back to him, a treasured memory that had never permitted itself to be entirely overlaid by subsequent events. When he was a boy of ten, on the eve of being sent to school at Rennes, she had come on a visit to his godfather, who was her cousin. It happened that at the time he was taken by Rabouillet to the manor of Gavriac, 
and there he had been presented to Madame de Plougastel. The great lady, in all the glory then of her youthful beauty, with her gentle, cultured voice, so cultured that she had seemed to speak a language almost unknown to the little Breton lad, and her majestic air of the great world, had scared him a little at first. Very gently had she allayed those fears of his, and by some mysterious enchantment she had completely enslaved his regard. He recalled now the terror in which he had gone to the embrace to which he was bidden, and the subsequent reluctance with which he had left those soft round arms. He remembered, too, how sweetly she had smelled, and the very perfume she had used, a perfume as of lilac, for memory is singularly tenacious in these matters. For three days whilst she had been at Gavriac, he had gone daily to the manor, and so had spent hours in her company. A childless woman, with the maternal instinct strong within her, she had taken this precociously intelligent, wide-eyed lad to her heart. "'Give him to me, cousin Contin,' he remembered her saying on the last of those days to his godfather. "'Let me take him back with me to Versailles as my adopted child.' But the seigneur had gravely shaken his head in silent refusal, and there had been no further question of such a thing. And then when she said good-bye to him, the thing came flooding back to him now. There had been tears in his eyes. "'Think of me sometimes, André-Louis.' had been her last words. He remembered how flattered he had been to have won within so short a time the affection of this great lady. The thing had given him a sense of importance that had endured for months thereafter, finally to fade into oblivion. But all was vividly remembered now upon beholding her again, after sixteen years, profoundly changed and matured. The girl for she had been no more in those old days, sunk in this worldly woman with the air of calm dignity and complete self-possession. Yet, he insisted, he must have known her anywhere again. Aline embraced her affectionately, and then answering the questioning glance with faintly raised eyebrows that Madame was directing towards Aline's companion, "'This is André-Louis,' she said. "'You remember André-Louis, Madame?' Madame checked. André-Louis saw the surprise ripple over her face, taking with it some of her colour, leaving her for a moment breathless. And then the voice, the well-remembered, rich, musical voice, richer and deeper now than of yore, repeated his name. André-Louis. Her manner of uttering it suggested that it awakened memories, memories, perhaps, of the departed youth with which it was associated. And she paused a long moment, considering him, a little wide-eyed, what time he bowed before her. But of course I remember him, she said at last, and came towards him, putting out her hand. He kissed it dutifully, submissively, instinctively. And this is what you have grown into? She appraised him and he flushed with pride at the satisfaction in her tone. He seemed to have gone back sixteen years, and to be again the little Breton lad at Gavriac. She turned to Aline. How mistaken Canton was in his assumptions. He was pleased to see him again, was he not? So pleased, madame, that he has shown me the door, 
said André Louis. Ah. She frowned, conning him still with those dark, wistful eyes of hers. We must change that, Aline. He is, of course, very angry with you, but it is not the way to make converts. I will plead for you, André Louis. I am a good advocate. He thanked her and took his leave. I leave my case in your hands with gratitude. My homage, madame. And so it happened that in spite of his godfather's forbidding reception of him, the fragment of a song was on his lips as his yellow chaise whirled him back to Paris and the Rue de Hazard. That meeting with Madame de Plougastel had enheartened him. Her promise to plead his case in alliance with Aline gave him assurance that all would be well. That he was justified of this was proved when, on the following Thursday, towards noon, his academy was invaded by Monsieur de Kercadou. Gilles, the boy, brought him word of it, and breaking off at once the lesson upon which he was engaged, he pulled off his mask and went as he was, in a chamois waistcoat buttoned to the chin and with his foil under his arm to the modest salon below, where his godfather awaited him. The florid little lord of Gavriac stood almost defiantly to receive him. "'I have been over-persuaded to forgive you,' he announced aggressively, seeming thereby to imply that he consented to this merely so as to put an end to tiresome importunities. André-Louis was not misled. He detected a pretense adopted by the seigneur, so as to enable him to retreat in good order. My blessings on the persuaders, whoever they may have been. You restore me my happiness, monsieur my godfather. He took the hand that was proffered and kissed it, yielding to the impulse of the unfailing habit of his boyish days. It was an act symbolical of his complete submission, re-establishing between himself and his godfather the bond of protected and protector, with all the mutual claims and duties that it carries. No mere words could more completely have made his peace with this man who loved him. Monsieur de Kierkeudu's face flushed a deeper pink, his lip trembled, and there was a huskiness in the voice that murmured, My dear boy. Then he recollected himself, threw back his great head and frowned. His voice resumed its habitual shrillness. You realize, I hope, that you have behaved damnably, damnably, and with the utmost ingratitude. Does not that depend upon the point of view? quoth André Louis, but his tone was studiously conciliatory. It depends upon a fact, and not upon any point of view. Since I have been persuaded to overlook it, I trust that at least you have some intention of reforming. I... I will abstain from politics, said André Louis. That being the utmost he could say with truth. That is something, at least. His godfather permitted himself to be mollified, now that a concession, or a seeming concession, had been made to his just resentment. A chair, monsieur. No, no, I have come to carry you off to pay a visit with me. You owe it entirely to Madame de Plougastel that I consent to receive you again. I desire that you come with me to thank her. I have my engagements here, began André Louis, and then broke off. No matter, I will arrange it. A moment. And he was turning away to re-enter the academy. 
What are your engagements? You are not by chance a fencing instructor. Monsieur de Kercadieu had observed the leather waistcoat and the foil tucked under André Louis' arm. I am the master of this academy, the academy of the late Bertrand des Amis, the most flourishing school of arms in Paris today. Monsieur de Kercadieu's brows went up. And you are master of it? Maître en fait d'armes. I succeeded to the academy upon the death of des Amis. He left Monsieur Kierkadu to think it over, and then went to make his arrangements and effect the necessary changes in his toilet. So that is why you have taken to wearing a sword, said Monsieur de Kierkadu, as they climbed into his waiting carriage. That, and the need to guard oneself in these times. And do you mean to tell me that a man who lives by what is, after all, an honourable profession, a profession mainly supported by the nobility, can at the same time associate himself with these peddling attorneys and low pamphleteers who are spreading dissension and insubordination? You forget that I am a peddling attorney myself, made so by your own wishes, monsieur. Monsieur de Kierkadu grunted and took snuff. You say the academy flourishes? he asked presently. It does. I have two assistant instructors— I could employ a third. It is hard work. That should mean that your circumstances are affluent. I have reason to be satisfied. I have far more than I need. Then you'll be able to do your share in paying off this national debt, growled the nobleman, well content that, as he conceived it, some of the evil André Louis had helped to sow should recoil upon him. And then the talk veered to Madame de Plougastel. Monsieur de Kierkadieu, André Louis gathered, but not the reason for it, disapproved most strongly of this visit. But then Madame la Comtesse was a headstrong woman, whom there was no denying, whom all the world obeyed. Madame de Plougastel was at present absent in Germany, but would shortly be returning. It was an indiscreet admission from which it was easy to infer that Monsieur de Plougastel was one of those intriguing emissaries who came and went between the Queen of France and her brother, the Emperor of Austria. The carriage drew up before a handsome hotel in the Faubourg Saint-Denis, at the corner of the Rue Paradis, and they were ushered by a sleek servant into a little boudoir, all gilt and brocade, that opened upon a terrace above a garden that was a park in miniature. Here Madame awaited them. She rose, dismissing the young person who had been reading to her, and came forward with both hands outheld to greet her cousin, Kierkadu. I almost feared that you would not keep your word, she said. It was unjust. But then I hardly hoped that you would succeed in bringing him. And her glance, gentle and smiling welcome upon him, indicated André Louis. The young man made answer with formal gallantry. The memory of you, madame, is too deeply imprinted on my heart for any persuasions to have been necessary. Ah, the courtier, said madame, and abandoned him her hand. We are to have a little talk, André Louis, she informed him, with a gravity that left him vaguely ill at ease. They sat down, and for a while the conversation was of general matters, chiefly concerned, however, with André Louis, his occupations, 
and his views, and all the while Madame was studying him attentively with those gentle, wistful eyes, until again that sense of uneasiness began to pervade him. He realized instinctively that he had been brought here for some purpose deeper than that which had been avowed. At last, as if the thing were concerted, and the clumsy lord of Gavriac was the last man in the world to cover his tracks, his godfather rose, and upon a pretext of desiring to survey the garden, sauntered through the windows on to the terrace, over whose white stone balustrade the geraniums trailed in a scarlet riot. Thence he vanished among the foliage below. "'Now we can talk more intimately,' said Madame. "'Come here and sit beside me.' She indicated the empty half of the settee she occupied. André-Louis went obediently, but a little uncomfortably. "'You know,' she said gently, placing a hand upon his arm, "'that you have behaved very ill, "'that your godfather's resentment is very justly founded. "'Madame, if I knew that, I should be the most unhappy, "'the most despairing of men.' "'And he explained himself, "'as he had explained himself on Sunday to his godfather. "'What I did, I did because it was the only means to my hand,' in a country in which justice was paralysed by privilege, to make war upon an infamous scoundrel who had killed my best friend, a wanton, brutal act of murder, which there was no law to punish. And as if that were not enough, forgive me if I speak with the utmost frankness, madame, he afterwards debauched the woman I was to have married. Ah, oh, mon Dieu! she cried out. Forgive me, I know that is horrible. You perceive, perhaps, what I suffered, how I came to be driven. That last affair of which I am guilty, the riot that began at the Feydou Theatre, and afterwards enveloped the whole city of Nantes, was provoked by this. Who was she, this girl? It was like a woman, he thought, to fasten upon the unessential. Oh, a theatre girl, a poor fool of whom I have no regrets. La Binet was her name. I was a player at the time in her father's troupe. That was after the Rennes business, when it was necessary to hide from such justice as exists in France. The gallows justice for unfortunates who are not born. This added wrong led me to provoke a riot in the theatre. Poor boy, she said tenderly. Only a woman's heart can realise what you must have suffered. And because of that I can so readily forgive you. But now... Ah, but you don't understand, madame. If today I thought that I had none but personal grounds for having lent a hand in the holy work of abolishing privilege, I think I should cut my throat. My true justification lies in the insincerity of those who intended that the convocation of the States-General should be a sham, mere dust in the eyes of the nation. Was it not perhaps wise to have been insincere in such a matter? He looked at her blankly. "'Can it ever be wise, madame, to be insincere?' "'Oh, indeed it can. Believe me, who am twice your age, and know my world.' "'I should say, madame, that nothing is wise that complicates existence, and I know of nothing that so complicates it as insincerity. Consider a moment the complications that have arisen out of this.' "'But surely, André-Louis, your views have not been so perverted that you do not see that a governing class 
is a necessity in any country. Why, of course, but not necessarily a hereditary one. What else? He answered her with an epigram. Man, madame, is the child of his own work. Let there be no inheriting of rights but from such a parent. Thus a nation's best will always predominate, and such a nation will achieve greatly. But do you account birth of no importance? Of none, madame, or else my own might trouble me. From the deep flush that stained her face, he feared that he had offended by what was almost an indelicacy. But the reproof that he was expecting did not come. Instead, And does it not? she asked. Never, André? Never, madame, I am content. You have never, never regretted your lack of parents' care? He laughed, sweeping aside her sweet charitable concern that was so superfluous. On the contrary, madame, I tremble to think what they might have made of me, and I am grateful to have had the fashioning of myself. She looked at him for a moment, very sadly, and then smiling, gently shook her head. You do not want self-satisfaction, yet I could wish that you saw things differently, André. It is a moment of great opportunities for a young man of talent and spirit. I could help you. I could help you, perhaps, to go very far if you would permit yourself to be helped after my fashion. Yes, he thought. Help me to a halter by sending me on treasonable missions to Austria on the Queen's behalf, like Monsieur de Plougastel. That would certainly end in a high position for me. Aloud, he answered more as politeness prompted. I am grateful, madame. But you will see that holding the ideals I have expressed, I could not serve any cause that is opposed to their realization. You are misled by prejudice, André Louis, by personal grievances. Will you allow them to stand in the way of your advancement? If what I call ideals were really prejudices, would it be honest of me to run counter to them whilst holding them? If I could convince you that you are mistaken, I could help you so much to find a worthy employment for the talents you possess. In the service of the king, you would prosper quickly. Will you think of it, André Louis, and let us talk of this again? He answered her with formal, chill politeness. I fear that it would be idle, madame. Yet your interest in me is very flattering, and I thank you. It is unfortunate for me that I am so headstrong. And now who deals in insincerity? She asked him. Ah, but you see, madame, it is an insincerity that does not mislead. And then Monsieur de Kercadou came in through the window again, and announced fussily that he must be getting back to Moudon, and that he would take his godson with him and set him down at the Rue du Hasard. You must bring him again, Canton, the countess said, as they took their leave of her. Some day, perhaps, said Monsieur de Kercadou vaguely and swept his godson out. In the carriage he asked him bluntly of what madame had talked. She was very kind, a sweet woman, said André Louis pensively. Devil take you! I didn't ask you the opinion that you presumed to have formed of her. 
I asked you what she said to you. She strove to point out to me the error of my ways. She spoke of great things that I might do, to which she would very kindly help me, if I were to come to my senses. But as miracles do not happen, I gave her little encouragement to hope. I see. I see. Did she say anything else? He was so peremptory that André-Louis turned to look at him. What else did you expect her to say, Monsieur my godfather? Oh, nothing. Then she fulfilled your expectations. Eh? Oh, a thousand devils! Why can't you express yourself in a sensible manner that a plain man can understand without having to think about it? He sulked after that most of the way to the Rue du Hasard, or so it seemed to André-Louis. At least he sat silent, gloomily thoughtful, to judge by his expression. You may come and see us soon again at Moudon, he told André-Louis at parting. But please remember, no revolutionary politics in future, if we are to remain friends. Chapter 6 Politicians One morning in August, the academy in the Rue du Hasard was invaded by Le Chapelier, accompanied by a man of remarkable appearance, whose Herculean stature and disfigured countenance seemed vaguely familiar to André-Louis. He was a man of little, if anything, over thirty, with small, bright eyes buried in an enormous face. His cheekbones were prominent, his nose awry, as if it had been broken by a blow, and his mouth was rendered almost shapeless by the scars of another injury. A bull had horned him in the face when he was but a lad. As if that were not enough to render his appearance terrible, his cheeks were deeply pockmarked. He was dressed untidily in a long scarlet coat that descended almost to his ankles, soiled buckskin breeches and boots with reversed tops. His shirt, none too clean, was open at the throat, the collar hanging limply over an unknotted cravat, displaying fully the muscular neck that rose like a pillar from his massive shoulders. He swung a cane that was almost a club in his left hand, and there was a cockade in his biscuit-coloured, conical hat. He carried himself with an aggressive, masterful air, that great head of his thrown back as if he were eternally at defiance. Le Chapelier, whose manner was very grave, named him to André-Louis. This is Monsieur Danton, a brother lawyer, president of the Cordelier, of whom you will have heard. Of course André-Louis had heard of him, who had not by then. Looking at him now with interest, André-Louis wondered how it came that all, or nearly all, the leading innovators were pockmarked. Mirabeau, the journalist Desmoulins, the philanthropist Marat, Robespierre, the little lawyer from Arras, this formidable fellow, Danton, and several others he could call to mind, all bore upon them the scars of smallpox. Almost he began to wonder was there any connection between the two. Did an attack of smallpox produce certain moral results which found expression in this way? He dismissed the idle speculation, or rather it was shattered by the startling thunder of Danton's voice. This blank Chapelier has told me of you. He says that you are a patriotic blank. 
More than by the tone was André-Louis startled by the obscenities with which the Colossus did not hesitate to interlard his first speech to a total stranger. He laughed outright. There was nothing else to do. If he has told you that, he has told you more than the truth. I am a patriot. The rest my modesty compels me to disavow. You're a joker, too, it seems, roared the other. But he laughed nevertheless, and the volume of it shook the windows. There's no offence in me. I am like that. What a pity, said André-Louis. It disconcerted the king of the markets. Eh? What's this, Chapelier? Does he give himself airs, your friend here? The spruce Breton, a very petit maître in appearance, by contrast with his companion, but nevertheless in a downright manner quite equal to Danton's in brutality, though dispensing with the emphasis of foulness, shrugged as he answered him. It is merely that he doesn't like your manners, which is not at all surprising. They are execrable. Ah, bah! You're all like that, you blank Bretons. Let's come to business. You've all heard what took place in the assembly yesterday. You haven't? By God, where do you live? Have you heard that this scoundrel who calls himself King of France gave passage across French soil the other day to Austrian troops— "'going to crush those who fight for liberty in Belgium? "'Have you heard that by any chance?' "'Yes,' said André-Louis coldly, "'masking his irritation before the other's hectoring manner. "'I have heard that.' "'Oh, and what do you think of it?' "'Arms akimbo, the colossus towered above him. "'André-Louis turned aside to Le Chapelier. "'I don't think I understand.' "'Have you brought this gentleman here to examine my conscience?' "'Name of a name, he's prickly as a blank porcupine,' Danton protested. "'No, no.' Le Chapelier was conciliatory, seeking to provide an antidote to the irritant administered by his companion. "'We require your help, André. Danton here thinks that you are the very man for us. Listen now.' "'That's it. You tell him,' Danton agreed." You both talk the same mincing sort of French. He'll probably understand you. The Chapelier went on without heeding the interruption. This violation by the king, of the obvious rights of a country, engaged in framing a constitution that shall make it free, has shattered every philanthropic illusion we still cherished. There are those who go so far as to proclaim the king the avowed enemy of France— but that, of course, is excessive. Who says so? blazed Danton, and swore horribly by way of conveying his total disagreement. Le Chapelier waved him into silence and proceeded. Anyhow, the matter has been more than enough, added to all the rest, to set us by the ears again in the assembly. It is open war between the third estate and the privileged. Was it ever anything else? Perhaps not. "'but it has assumed a new character. "'You'll have heard of the duel between La Met and the Duc de Castry? "'A trifling affair, in its results, but it might have been far other. "'Mirabeau is challenged and insulted now at every sitting, "'but he goes his way cold-bloodedly wise. "'Others are not so circumspect. "'They meet insult with insult, blow with blow, "'and blood is being shed in private duels.' The thing is reduced by these swordsmen of the nobility to a system. André-Louis nodded. 
He was thinking of Philippe de Villemorin. Yes, he said. It is an old trick of theirs. It is so simple and direct, like themselves. I wonder only that they didn't hit upon this system sooner. In the early days of the States General, at Versailles, it might have had a better effect. Now it comes a little late. But they mean to make up for lost time, sacred name, cried Danton. Challengers are flying right and left between these bully swordsmen, these spadassinadid, and poor devils of the robe who have never learnt a fence with anything but a quill. It's just blank murder. Yet if I were to go amongst Monsieur Le Nobler and crunch an addled head or two with this stick of mine, snap a few aristocratic necks between these fingers which the good God has given me for the purpose, the law would send me to atone upon the gallows. This in a land that is striving after liberty. I do the dumb. I'm not even allowed to keep my hat on in the theatre, but they blank these blanks. He is right, said Le Chapelier. The thing has become unendurable, insufferable. Two days ago, Monsieur Dombly threatened Mirabeau with his cane before the whole assembly. Yesterday, Monsieur de Faucigny leapt up and harangued his order by inviting murder. Why don't we fall on these scoundrels, sword in hand, he asked. Those were his very words. Why don't we fall on these scoundrels, sword in hand? It is so much simpler than law-making, said André Louis. Lagrand, the deputy from Ancenis in the Loire, said something that we did not hear in answer. As he was leaving the Monage, one of these bullies grossly insulted him. Lagrand no more than used his elbow to push past when the fellow cried out that he had been struck and issued his challenge. They fought this morning early in the Champs-Élysées, and Lagrand was killed, run through the stomach deliberately by a man who fought like a fencing-master, and poor Lagrand did not even own a sword. He had to borrow one to go to the assignation. André-Louis, his mind ever on Villemorin, whose case was here repeated, even to the details, was swept by a gust of passion. He clenched his hands, and his jaws set. Danton's little eyes observed him keenly. "'Well, what do you think of that? No bless oblige, eh? The thing is, we must oblige them too, these blanks. We must pay them back in the same coin, meet them with the same weapons, abolish them, tumble these assassinateurs into the abyss of nothingness by the same means.' "'But how?' "'How? Name of God, haven't I said it?' "'That is where we require your help,' Le Chapelier put in. "'There must be men of patriotic feeling among the more advanced of your pupils. "'Monsieur Danton's idea is that a little band of these, say half a dozen, with yourself at their head, "'might read these bullies a sharp lesson.' "'André-Louis frowned. "'And how precisely had Monsieur Danton thought that this might be done?' "'Monsieur Danton spoke for himself vehemently.' Why, thus, we post you in the manege, at the hour when the assembly is rising, and we point out the six leading phlebotomists, and let you loose to insult them before they have time to insult any of the representatives. Then tomorrow morning, six blank phlebotomists themselves phlebotomized secundumatum. That will give the others something to think about. It will give them a great deal to think about by blank. If necessary, the dose may be repeated to ensure a cure. If you kill the blanks, so much the better. He paused, 
his sallow face flushed with the enthusiasm of his idea. André-Louis stared at him inscrutably. "'Well, what do you say to that?' "'That it is most ingenious.' And André-Louis turned aside to look out of the window. "'And is that all you think of it?' "'I will not tell you what else I think of it, because you probably would not understand. For you, Monsieur Danton, there is at least this excuse that you did not know me. But you, Isaac, to bring this gentleman here with such a proposal—' The Chapelier was overwhelmed in confusion. "'I confess I hesitated,' he apologized. "'But Monsieur Danton would not take my word for it "'that the proposal might not be to your taste.' "'I would not!' Danton broke in, bellowing. He swung upon Le Chapelier, brandishing his great arms. "'You told me Monsieur was a patriot. "'Patriotism knows no scruples. "'You call this mincing dancing master a patriot?' "'Would you, monsieur, out of patriotism, consent to become an assassin?' "'Of course I would. Haven't I told you so? "'Haven't I told you that I would gladly go among them with my club "'and crack them like so many fleas?' "'Why not, then?' "'Why not? Because I should get myself hanged. Haven't I said so?' "'But what of that blank being a patriot? "'Why not, like another courteous, jump into the gulf?' since you believe your country would benefit by your death. Monsieur Danton showed signs of exasperation. Because my country will benefit more by my life. Permit me, monsieur, to suffer from a similar vanity. You? But where would be the danger to you? You would do your work under the cloak of dueling, as they do. Have you reflected, monsieur, that the law will hardly regard a fencing-master who kills his opponent as an ordinary combatant, particularly if it can be shown that the fencing-master himself provoked the attack. So, name of a name. Monsieur Danton blew out his cheeks and delivered himself with withering scorn. It comes to this, then. You are afraid. You may think so, if you choose, that I am afraid to do slyly and treacherously— that which a thrasonical patriot like yourself is afraid of doing frankly and openly. I have other reasons, but that one should suffice you. Danton gasped. Then he swore more amazingly and variedly than ever. By blank, you are right, he admitted, to André-Louis' amazement. You are right, and I am wrong. I am as bad a patriot as you are, and I am a coward as well and he invoked the whole pantheon to witness his self-denunciation. Only, you see, I count for something, and if they take me and hang me, why, there it is. Monsieur, we must find some other way. Forgive the intrusion. Adieu. He held out his enormous hand. Le Chapelier stood, hesitating, crestfallen. You understand, André? I am sorry that— Say no more, please— Come and see me soon again. I would press you to remain, but it is striking nine, and the first of my pupils is about to arrive. Nor would I permit it, said Danton. Between us we must resolve the riddle of how to extinguish Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir and his friends. Who? Sharp as a pistol shot came that question, as Danton was turning away. The tone of it brought him up short. He turned again, Le Chapelier with him. "'I said Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir.' 
What has he to do with the proposal you are making me? He? Why, he is the phlebotomist in chief. And Le Chapelier added, It was he who killed Legrand. Not a friend of yours, is he? wondered Danton. And it is La Tour d'Azir you desire me to kill, asked André Louis very slowly, after the manner of one whose thoughts are meanwhile pondering the subject. That's it, said Danton, and not a job for a prentice hand, I can assure you. Ah, but this alters things, said André Louis, thinking aloud. It offers a great temptation. Why, then, the colossus took a step towards him again. Wait, he put up his hand. Then with chin sunk on his breast, he paced away to the window, musing. Le Chapelier and Danton exchanged glances, then watched him, waiting, what time he considered. At first he almost wondered why he should not of his own accord have decided upon some such course as this to settle that long-standing account of Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir. What was the use of this great skill in fence that he had come to acquire, unless he could turn it to account to avenge Villemorin, and to make Aline safe from the lure of her own ambition? It would be an easy thing to seek out La Tour d'Azir, put a mortal affront upon him, and thus bring him to the point. Today this would be murder, murder as treacherous as that which La Tour d'Azir had done upon Philippe de Villemorin. For today the old positions were reversed, and it was André Louis who might go to such an assignation without a doubt of the issue. It was a moral obstacle of which he made short work but there remained the legal obstacle he had expounded to Danton. There was still law in France, the same law which he had found it impossible to move against La Tour d'Azir, but which would move briskly enough against himself in like case. And then, suddenly, as if by inspiration, he saw the way, a way which, if adopted, would probably bring La Tour d'Azir to a poetic justice, bring him insolent, confident to thrust himself upon André Louis' sword, with all the odium of provocation on his own side. He turned to them again, and they saw that he was very pale, that his great dark eyes glowed oddly. There will probably be some difficulty in finding a suppliant for this poor Lagrand, he said. Our fellow countrymen will be none so eager to offer themselves to the swords of privilege. True enough, said Le Chapelier gloomily. And then, as if suddenly leaping to the thing in André Louis' mind, André, he cried, would you? It is what I was considering. It would give me a legitimate place in the assembly. If your Tour d'Azir should choose to seek me out then, why their blood be upon their own heads— I shall certainly do nothing to discourage them. He smiled curiously. I am just a rascal who tries to be honest. Scaramouche is always, in fact, a creature of sophistries. Do you think that Anceny would have me for its representative? Will it have omnis omnibus for its representative? Le Chapelier was laughing, his countenance eager. Anceny will be convulsed with pride. It is not Rennes or Nantes, as it might have been had you wished it, but it gives you a voice for Brittany. I should have to go to Anceny. No need at all. A letter from me to the municipality, 
and the municipality will confirm you at once. No need to move from here. In a fortnight at most, the thing can be accomplished. It is settled then? André Louis considered yet a moment. There was his academy, but he could make arrangements with Le Duc and Galoche to carry it on for him whilst himself directing and advising. Le Duc, after all, was becoming a thoroughly efficient master, and he was a trustworthy fellow. At need, a third assistant could be engaged. Be it so, said he at last. Le Chapelier clasped hands with him and became congratulatorily voluble, until interrupted by the red-coated giant at the door. What exactly does it mean to our business, anyway? he asked. Does it mean that when you are a representative you will not scruple to skewer Monsieur le Marquis? If Monsieur le Marquis should offer himself to be skewered, as he no doubt will. I perceive the distinction, said Monsieur Danton, and sneered. You've an ingenious mind. He turned to Le Chapelier. What did you say he was to begin with? A lawyer, wasn't it? Yes, I was a lawyer, and afterwards a mountebank. And this is the result, as you say. And do you know that we are not, after all, so dissimilar, you and I? What? Once, like you, I went about, inciting other people to go and kill the man I wanted dead. You'll say I was a coward, of course. Le Chapelier prepared to slip between them as the clouds gathered on the giant's brow. Then these were dispelled again, and the great laugh vibrated through the long room. You've touched me for a second time, and in the same place. Oh, you can fence, my lad. We should be friends. Rue de Cordelier is my address. Any blank scoundrel will tell you where Danton lodges. Desmolons lives underneath. Come and visit us one evening. There's always a bottle for a friend. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Scaramouche, Part 9 of 12, by Raphael Sabatini. If you've enjoyed this book, feel free to visit our new website at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You can download some free audiobooks and sign up to be a financial supporter for as little as $5 a month. The supporter program is a study in over-delivery. Give it a try and see how you like it. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Music